Welcome, everybody. Last year, we did a summer of Psalms, yet I had to talk to a camera, and then you had to watch it on social media. But we looked at 11 different Psalms last summer, and this summer, we're going to look at 12. Now, I know summer hasn't officially started till after Father's Day, I think, So, but we'll start, and we're going to look at 12 different Psalms. But before I begin, I want to start, and each night, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have some questions for you. So tonight's question is if you were to die tonight, or tomorrow, or this week, are you prepared? Is your funeral prepared? Is it ready? Specifically, do you know what you're going to put on your tombstone, excluding the few of you who are going to get cremated? Do you know what you're going to put on your tombstone? Anybody? Anybody thought it out? Anybody written it out? Nobody? So you're going to, let's say you die. And your, your kids are going to put loving father, great dad, little mother. But do you have a Bible verse to put on your tombstone? I know what I want. I want Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My sister Ruth, who died of breast cancer in 2012, she knew she was going to pass away. She planned her whole funeral out. Who was going to speak? She planned it all out, including what she wanted on her tombstone, and that was Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. On my dad's tombstone is Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I will lift mine eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And my brother went through my mom's Bible when my mom died a couple years ago, and he put Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us, we are glad. Now, you can put a verse, I was talking to Peggy, Larry, Larry who recently passed, has a, a verse from Revelation. There's good verses from John 14 and, of course, 1 Corinthians 15. It doesn't have to be from Psalms, but a lot of people, I would say, more people put Psalms on the gravestones, but... You guys aren't ready, so we might have to have a mortuary salesman come in on Saturday, Sunday and tombstone salesman and get you ready. But why Psalms? Why Psalms? Listen to what one author said. Perhaps you turn in your Bible to the Psalms, the Song of Songs, Proverbs, Lamentations. These books are wholly poetic. Or perhaps you turn to Job, Ecclesiastes, or parts of the prophets. These books are mainly poetic. Or perhaps you are eyeing one of those songs that appear in key points in salvation history. Remember Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32, called the Song of Moses? Remember in Judges 5, the Song of Deborah. That's poetry. And of course, I love 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song after she got pregnant. And then of course, the New Testament in Luke, we have Mary's song. The Catholics call it the Magnificent. And then in the same chapter, Zechariah has a song. There are many other poetic texts throughout the Bible. God's word is filled with poetry. God loves poetry. So should you. And you know, I have made it a, a crusade almost to try to get people to read one psalm a day. And I probably got three or four of you to comply. Um, but if you would read one psalm a day, you know, it's the longest book in the Bible. You know that, 150 chapters. It's about 13% of the Bible by, 
by chapters. It has 2,461 verses. That means it's about 8% of all the verses in the Bible. And, you know, a lot of you think, well, Psalm 119, I don't want to read that. It would take me like an hour, 176 verses. But there are only 13 psalms that are over 30 verses. And there are only four psalms that have over 50 verses. There are 58 psalms, including the one we're going to look at tonight, that are 10 verses or less. How long does it take to read the psalm we're going to read tonight? Maybe 30 seconds. If you read one psalm a day at the end of two years, you will have read through the book of Psalms five times. And I guarantee you, your prayer life will be enhanced. Your praise life will increase. You will see Jesus Christ in the Psalms. It will strengthen your soul and heart for future trials. It will help you reflect and meditate on what God has done for us. But you know, there is a, I believe there's a, today there is a lost love for the Psalms. Lance mentioned on Sunday he loves to preach the Old Testament. Well, I spent 18 years overseas, and I heard probably three messages from the Old Testament in 18 years. Pastors, they don't know how to make the application for the Old Testament. And I only heard one psalm, one message on psalm, and he covered Psalm 23, verse 1, and it wasn't very good. Why is that? You know, in ancient times, pastors, there's one church in in, uh, Eastern Orthodox that the pastors had to memorize all 150 psalms to be the pastor. There was a love for the psalms, but today we want prophecy, right? We just had 2 Thessalonians, and I came eagerly to hear about prophecy. We love the narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We love Genesis and the stories that come with narratives. And, of course, we love doctrine. We just finished ten and a half chapters of doctrine in Hebrew. But Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the other poetic texts, not so much. Why is that? Well, I will make the case that the new generation today, the millennials or whatever you want to call them, they don't like poetry much anymore. Psalms is Hebrew poetry, and we have it translated into English. But... Poetry was very, very popular a hundred years ago. I'd like you to listen to a poem that was written in February 18, 1933. This was written by a mother whose husband died, and she had to write the poem to her three-year-old daughter. She wrote the poem so the daughter could understand about daddy. Listen carefully. Mother Where did daddy go? Anxious blue eyes begged to know. Will he come in at our door, roll the ball across the floor? Will he come to drive our car? Let me ride beside him far. O'er the hill and down the lane, in the country, back again. Will he come to eat with me or hold me on his knee? I want to have him bounce me high. Let me go up to the sky. Tell me, mother, why is he late? And the papers at the gate. Why I do not hear him say, Carol, come in from your play. Where is heaven, mother dear? Is it far or is it near? Can we find our daddy there? Won't he need his shoes to wear? Just at evening time there came God's own chariot, ours to claim. Now he's home in heaven high, feels no pain and gives no sigh. 
a few more steps along the way, and we'll see the light of heaven's day. And in that light, behold his face, make heaven our sweet abiding place. That poem was written by my grandmother when her husband died in Laverne in 1933. My mom was three years old, so she would live another 87 years, but she had that poem to treasure and to pass it on to her kids. Poetry, though, was very popular. I don't know if there are any old-timers here. Are there any old-timers here, husbands, who wrote a poem to their future wife when you, when you were courting her? Anybody? Nobody? Because today you just go by, all right, we got one, two. All right, thank you. You got a special husband then. <laughs> they would sit down and write the poem because they were in love, right? Now you just go buy a Hallmark card and the poem's there, right? But uh, poetry was much more popular. Now, I guess at Biden's uh, inaugural, there was a poet. There are poets today. There are poet societies, but nothing like 100 years ago, 75 years ago. Our plan for the next 12 weeks is to study one psalm a night. We're going to look at different psalms, different type of psalms. And, but before we do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the psalms. How do we get them? How are they compiled? Who wrote them? The symbols, things like that. And I don't want to do that all in one night because I would bore you. But tonight I'll just talk about the type of psalms there are and the superscriptions before we get into our psalm. So let's talk about the types of psalms there are. Now, many of you here at Christ Community Church have a MacArthur Study Bible, right? Well, in my MacArthur Study Bible, in page 743, there's a chart that lists seven kinds of psalms. And I like to know these. Now, if you read the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, or a different commentary, they may argue Psalms 8 is a praise psalm, or somebody might say, no, Psalms 8 is a wisdom psalm. But most of the time, they're pretty close. So in the MacArthur Study Bible, the first type of psalm is called laments. And that's the psalms that we're going to look at tonight. Now, laments, uh, Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, five of them in a row. Psalms 12, 13, I won't list them all out. But there are probably about 60 of the 150 psalms that are called lament psalms. Lament psalms express a need for God's deliverance. There's a problem. Somebody's in trouble. Somebody's in pain or sorrow, as you'll see. So lament psalms are the first type of psalms that we will look at. The second type of psalms that are very popular are the thanksgiving or praise psalms. We'll look at one of those next week. Psalms 8, Psalms 18, Psalms 29, Psalms 30, all the, Psalms 136. And of course, these psalms, very popular, they, they make aware of God's blessing and we express thanks to God. Then you get into the other type of psalms, which are not so popular and less known, enthronement psalms. Psalms 47, Psalms 93, and then 96 through 99. These uh, describe God and his sovereign rule. Then you have the pilgrimage psalms. There are 15 of those in Psalms 120 to Psalms 134. We call those the Song of Ascent psalms. But Psalms 84, Psalms 46 are also uh, pilgrimage psalms. And those set uh, a mood for worship. The pilgrims were going to Jerusalem to worship and they would sing these uh, psalms. And then we have psalms that are called royal psalms. Psalms 2, 18, 20. And they, they might be about the king of Israel, 
but they're also portraying Jesus Christ as a sovereign ruler, royal psalms. And then, of course, we have the wisdom psalms, Psalms 1, Psalms 37, and, of course, Psalms 119. And the wisdom psalms give us instruction as to God's will. The last type of psalms are called imprecatory psalms. Not so popular, but I've actually had two people in the last two months tell me, how do we pray for Biden and Harris? They, I had a lady call me and say, I can't pray for them. I just can't pray for them. And it reminded her that the Bible tells us, and Jesus says, you have to pray for your enemies. Uh, so we're going to look at an imprecatory psalm, and you ask the question, David would call down fire or ask God to break their teeth or crush them. Um, can, we call, can we pray those prayers against Biden and Harris? And I'm going I'm to answer that question. But um, you got to be careful there, though. Okay. So imprecatory psalms uh, invoke the wrath of God and judgment against the enemies of whoever the psalmist was. So the type of psalm that we are going to look at tonight is called a lament. Webster's Dictionary would describe lament as to mourn aloud. I mentioned there are probably about 60 of these, and many of them are by David. Because, you know, David was pursued by King Saul for over 13 years. So David had a lot of trouble, a lot of times he was near death, so he had a lot of time to lament and write psalms. Well, a lament psalm, uh, you may not, you may remember, the book of Lamentations is pretty much an entire lament, five chapters. The book of Habakkuk is a lament. Jesus Christ in the Garden of Yosemite was lamenting to God the Father. So we have laments, prayers throughout the Bible. Laments are the voice of sorrows for God's people. Laments have theology. They have doxology in them. They have praise in them. Laments move from the negative to the positive, from sorrow to joy, from fear to trust. As the psalmist did, we today can cry out to God when we have a problem or we have pain. Now, there are two types of laments. Individual laments, Psalms 3, which is the one we're going to look at tonight, by the way. Psalms 22, Psalms 31, 39. I won't list them all, but individual laments are about an individual who is expressing struggles, suffering, or disappointments to the Lord. Then there are corporate laments where the whole peop the people in the tabernacle or all the people in the temple would lament together. Now, I wasn't here in 9-11, in church after 9-11. I was in India, but I understand that quite a few churches in the United States corporately read Psalm 88, which is a corporate lament in church after 9-11. But uh, whether individual or corporate laments, they express a deep, honest fervor for the distress that people felt. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm number three. Psalm number three. Now you may ask, why did I choose three? Well, I already preached number one, and I've already preached number two. Now I thought about redoing them, but you know, you, you can get that tape, but uh, I wanted to do a lament psalm, a different type of psalm. Now when you look at it, the nice thing about our new Bibles, all of our Bibles show you the paragraph breaks, right? 
So the old Bibles didn't used to do that. So you can see the paragraph break. So you should know that, you know, the first verses one and two are one paragraph. That's going to be one meaning. Then you get paragraph maybe three and four. I'm going to do three to five to six paragraph two. But our new Bibles give us the paragraph breaks. So we only have eight verses in this short psalm. And I would call this psalm, Lord, save me. So let's look at Psalm 3, and I'll read it now. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again, for the Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Well, go back to Psalms 1. You got it on the same page. What's the first sentence in Psalms 1? Blessed is the man, right? Okay. What's the last sentence in Psalms 2? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalms 1 and 2 go together. And Psalms 1, you know, the first word is blessed, the last word is perished. So Psalms 1, you have a way of righteousness or you have a way of wicked. You have two paths in life. Choose this day which path you're going to follow. Okay, the psalmist says, follow the righteous path. Stay away from sin. Then you get into Psalms 2, which is about the nations uprising against the Lord. But it ends very interesting with blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we come to Psalms 3. David is going to have to take refuge in the Lord. Now, there are connectors in the Psalms, and you have to look for them, and we'll talk more about this in different Psalms, but you have a wonderful connector here. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, because Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all lament Psalms. David has a problem. He's going to have to take refuge in the Lord, okay? So, Psalms 3 is one of the many lament psalms that deal with various circumstances that come into a godly man's life in which that man is forced to trust God. It's also called a mourning psalm. See verse 5? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now look at Psalms 4, verse 8. Psalms 4, verse 8. It says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So Psalms 3 is called a morning psalm, which often at the temple or tabernacle would be sung by the worshipers. And then at the evening sacrifice, they would do the evening psalm, Psalm number 4. Some people have also called Psalm 3 a military psalm because it's about a military battle. It contains military language. So I've talked about the type of psalms. I briefly want to talk about what we call the superscriptions. Everybody see at the top of, of Psalm 3, it says a psalm of David when he fled from his, his son, from Absalom his son. Everybody see that? I don't know if you ever read those when you read the psalms. I always do, and I would encourage you to do so. 
because they teach us a lot. Now, we call them superscriptions. You might call them titles. I don't like to call them titles because your Bible gives you a title. And superscriptions, uh, authors would debate, they're not inspired scripture. Some people would say they are, but it looks like they were added on later. Uh, They're in the Septuagint, possibly written 200 years before Jesus Christ, that Greek translation. So they're in the Septuagint. And of the 150 Psalms, 116 of them have some type of superscription from a very lengthy, lengthy, like Psalms 18 is like a paragraph, to some of them just a word. It just says a Psalm of David. So these are important because they, the historical ones are very important. They're important because they tell us who the author is. I preached on Psalm 90 last year. So when you know it's about Moses, you know that's possibly, that's the oldest psalm, maybe the oldest scripture in the Bible, Psalms 90, if he wrote that psalm before he wrote Genesis, Exodus. So, and a lot of them deal with the musical instruments, you know, um, that we don't even know what some of those instruments mean. But are they important? Well, do you remember Matthew 22 when I call that the great question chapter? The Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trick Jesus, and they ask him these series of questions, some of them rather stupid questions, and Jesus answers them brilliantly. And finally, at the end, Jesus turns the table, and Jesus says, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And of course, the Pharisees say the son of David. And then Jesus says, how then is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, and then Jesus will quote Psalms 110, verse, welcome everybody. Last year, we did a summer of Psalms, yet I had to talk to a camera, and then you had to watch it on social media. But we looked at 11 different Psalms last summer, and this summer we're going to look at 12. Now, I know summer hasn't officially started till after Father's Day, I think, so... But we'll start, and we're going to look at 12 different psalms. But before I begin, I want to start, and each night I'm going, to, I'm going to have some questions for you. So tonight's question is, if you were to die tonight, or tomorrow, or this week, are you prepared? Is your funeral prepared? Is it ready? Specifically, do you know what you're going to put on your tombstone, excluding the few of you who are going to get cremated? Do you know what you're going to put on your tombstone? Anybody? Anybody thought it out? Anybody written it out? Nobody? So you're going to, let's say you die, and your, your kids are going to put loving father, great dad, little mother, but do you have a Bible verse to put on your tombstone? I know what I want. I want Psalm 73, verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you, and there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My sister Ruth, who died of breast cancer in 2012, she knew she was going to pass away. She planned her whole funeral out. Who was going to speak? She planned it all out, including what she wanted on her tombstone, and that was Psalm 16, verse 11. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. On my dad's tombstone is Psalm 121, 1 and 2. I will lift mine eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And my brother went through my mom's Bible, 
when my mom died a couple years ago, and he put Psalm 126.3, the Lord has done great things for us, we are glad. Now, you can put a verse, I was talking to Peggy, Larry, Larry who recently passed, has a, a verse from Revelation. There's good verses from John 14 and, of course, 1 Corinthians 15. It doesn't have to be from Psalms, but a lot of people, I would say, more people put Psalms on the gravestones, but you guys aren't ready, so we might have to have a mortuary salesman come in on Saturday, Sunday and tombstone salesman and get you ready. But why Psalms? Why Psalms? Listen to what one author said. Perhaps you turn in your Bible to the Psalms, the Song of Songs, Proverbs, Lamentations. These books are wholly poetic. Or perhaps you turn to Job, Ecclesiastes, or parts of the prophets. These books are mainly poetic. Or perhaps you are eyeing one of those songs that appear in key points in salvation history. Remember Exodus 15 and Deuteronomy 32, called the Song of Moses? Remember in Judges 5, the song of Deborah. That's poetry. And of course, I love 1 Samuel 2, Hannah's song after she got pregnant. And then of course, the New Testament in Luke, we have Mary's song. The Catholics call it the Magnificent. And then in the same chapter, Zechariah has a song. There are many other poetic texts throughout the Bible. God's word is filled with poetry. God loves poetry so should you. And you know, I have made it a, a crusade almost to try to get people to read one psalm a day. And I probably got three or four of you to comply. Um, but if you would read one psalm a day, you know, it's the longest book in the Bible. You know that, 150 chapters. It's about 13% of the Bible by, by chapters. It has 2,461 verses that means it's about 8% of all the verses in the Bible. And, you know, a lot of you think, well, Psalm 119, I don't want to read that. It would take me like an hour, 176 verses. But there are only 13 Psalms that are over 30 verses. And there are only four Psalms that have over 50 verses. There are 58 Psalms, including the one we're going to look at tonight, that are 10 verses or less. How long does it take to read the psalm we're going to read tonight, maybe 30 seconds. If you read one psalm a day at the end of two years, you will have read through the book of Psalms five times. And I guarantee you, your prayer life will be enhanced. Your praise life will increase. You will see Jesus Christ in the psalms. It will strengthen your soul and heart for future trials. It will help you reflect and meditate and what God has done for us. But you know, there is a, I believe there's a, today there is a lost love for the Psalms. Lance mentioned on Sunday, he loves to preach the Old Testament. Well, I spent 18 years overseas, and I heard probably three messages from the Old Testament in 18 years. Pastors, they don't know how to make the application for the Old Testament. And I only heard one Psalm one message on Psalm, and he covered Psalm 23, verse 1, and it wasn't very good. Why is that? You know, in ancient times, pastors, there's one church in, in uh, Ether, Eastern Orthodox that the pastors had to memorize all 150 Psalms to be the pastor. There was a love for the Psalms, but today we want prophecy, right? We just had second, third, second Thessalonians, and I came eagerly to hear about prophecy, 
We love the narratives, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We love Genesis and the stories that come with narratives. And, of course, we love doctrine. We just finished ten and a half chapters of doctrine in Hebrew. But Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, and the other poetic texts, not so much. Why is that? Well, I will make the case that the new generation today, the millennials or whatever you want to call them, they don't like poetry much anymore. Psalms is Hebrew poetry, and we have it translated into English. But poetry was very, very popular 100 years ago. I'd like you to listen to a poem that was written in February 18, 1933. This was written by a mother whose husband died, and she had to write the poem to her three-year-old daughter. She wrote the poem so the daughter could understand about daddy. Listen carefully. Mother, where did daddy go? Anxious blue eyes begged to know. Will he come in at our door, roll the ball across the floor? Will he come to drive our car? Let me ride beside him far. O'er the hill and down the lane, in the country, back again. Will he come to eat with me or hold me on his knee? I want to have him bounce me high. Let me go up to the sky. Tell me, mother, why is he late? And the paper's at the gate. Why I do not hear him say, Carol, come in from your play. Where is heaven, mother dear? Is it far or is it near? Can we find our daddy there? Won't he need his shoes to wear? Just at evening time there came God's own chariot, ours to claim. Now he's home in heaven high, feels no pain and gives no sigh. A few more steps along the way and we'll see the light of heaven's day. And in that light, behold his face, make heaven our sweet abiding place. That poem was written by my grandmother when her husband died in Laverne in 1933. My mom was three years old, so she would live another 87 years, but she had that poem, The Treasure, and to pass it on to her kids. Poetry, though, was very popular. I don't know if there are any old-timers here. Are there any old-timers here, husbands, who wrote a poem to their future wife when you, when you were courting her? Anybody? Nobody? Because today you just go by, all right, we got one, two. All right, thank you. You got a special husband then. <laughs> they would sit down and write the poem because they were in love, right? Now you just go buy a Hallmark card and the poem's there, right? But uh, poetry was much more popular. Now, I guess at Biden's uh, inaugural, there was a poet. There are poets today. There are poet societies, but nothing like 100 years ago, 75 years ago. Our plan for the next 12 weeks is to study one psalm a night. We're going to look at different psalms, different type of psalms. And, but before we do that, I'm going to talk a little bit about the psalms. How do we get them? How are they compiled? Who wrote them? The symbols, things like that. And I don't want to do that all in one night because I would bore you. But tonight I'll just talk about the type of psalms there are and the superscriptions before we get into our psalm. So let's talk about the types of psalms there are. Now, many of you here at Christ Community Church have a MacArthur Study Bible, right? Well, in my MacArthur Study Bible, on page 743, there's a chart that lists seven kinds of psalms. And I like to know these. Now, 
if you read the book, How to Read the Bible for All It's Worth, or a different commentary, they may argue Psalms 8 is a praise psalm, or somebody might say, no, Psalms 8 is a wisdom psalm. But most of the time, they're pretty close. So in the MacArthur Study Bible, the first type of psalm is called laments, and that's the psalms that we're going to look at tonight. Now, laments, uh, Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, five of them in a row, Psalms 12, 13, I won't list them all out, but there are probably about 60 of the 150 psalms that are called lament psalms. Lament psalms express a need for God's deliverance. There's a problem. Somebody's in trouble. Somebody's in pain or sorrow, as you'll see. So lament psalms are the first type of psalms that we will look at. The second type of psalms that are very popular are the thanksgiving or praise psalms. We'll look at one of those next week. Psalms 8, Psalms 18, Psalms 29, Psalms 30, all the, Psalms 136. And of course, these psalms, very popular, they, they make aware of God's blessing and we express thanks to God. Then you get into the other type of psalms, which are not so popular and less known, enthronement psalms, Psalms 47, Psalms 93, and then 96 through 99. These uh, describe God and his sovereign rule. Then you have the pilgrimage psalms. There are 15 of those in Psalms 120 to Psalms 134. We call those the Song of Ascent Psalms. But Psalms 84, Psalms 46 are also uh, pilgrimage psalms. And those set uh, a mood for worship. The pilgrims were going to Jerusalem to worship, and they would sing these uh, psalms. And then we have psalms that are called royal psalms. Psalms 2, 18, 20, and they, they might be about the king of Israel, but they're also portraying Jesus Christ as a sovereign ruler, royal psalms. And then, of course, we have the wisdom psalms, Psalms 1, Psalms 37, and, of course, Psalms 119. And the wisdom psalms give us instruction as to God's will. The last type of psalms, are called imprecatory psalms. Not so popular, but I've actually had two people in the last two months tell me, how do we pray for Biden and Harris? They, I had a lady call me and say, I can't pray for them. I just can't pray for them. And I reminded her that the Bible tells us, and Jesus says, you have to pray for your enemies. Uh, so we're going to look at an imprecatory psalm, and you ask the question, David would call down fire or ask God to break their teeth or crush them. Um, can, we call, can we pray those prayers against Biden and Harris? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to answer that question. But um, you got to be careful there, though. Okay. So imprecatory psalms uh, invoke the wrath of God and judgment against the enemies of whoever the psalmist was. So the type of psalm that we are going to look at tonight is called a lament. Webster's Dictionary would describe lament as to mourn aloud. I mentioned there are probably about 60 of these, and many of them are by David. Because, you know, David was pursued by King Saul for over 13 years. So David had a lot of trouble, a lot of times he was near death, so he had a lot of time to lament and write psalms. Well, a lament psalm, uh, you might not... You may remember, the book of Lamentations is pretty much an entire lament, five chapters. The book of Habakkuk is a lament. 
Jesus Christ in the Garden of Yosemite was lamenting to God the Father. So we have laments, prayers throughout the Bible. Laments are the voice of sorrows for God's people. Laments have theology. They have doxology in them. They have praise in them. Laments move from the negative to the positive, from sorrow to joy, from fear to trust. As the psalmist did, we today can cry out to God when we have a problem or we have pain. Now, there are two types of laments. Individual laments, Psalms 3, which is the one we're going to look at tonight, by the way. Psalms 22, Psalms 31, 39. I won't list them all, but individual laments are about an individual who is expressing struggles, suffering, or disappointments to the Lord. Then there are corporate laments where the whole peop- the people in the tabernacle or all the people in the temple would lament together. Now, I wasn't here in 9-11, in church after 9-11. I was in India, but I understand that quite a few churches in the United States corporately read Psalm 88, which is a corporate lament in church after 9-11. But uh, whether individual or corporate laments, they express a deep, honest fervor for the distress that people felt. So if you have your Bible, turn with me to Psalm number three. Psalm number three. Now you may ask, why did I choose three? Well, I already preached number one, and I've already preached number two. Now I thought about redoing them, but you know, you you can get that tape, but uh, I wanted to do a lament psalm, a different type of psalm. Now when you look at it, the nice thing about our new Bibles, all of our Bibles show you the paragraph breaks, right? So the old Bibles didn't used to do that. So you can see the paragraph break. So you should know that, you know, the first verses one and two are one paragraph. That's going to be one meaning. Then you get paragraph maybe three and four. I'm going to do three to five to six paragraph two. But our new Bibles give us the paragraph breaks. So we only have eight verses in this short psalm. And I would call this psalm, Lord, save me. So let's look at Psalm three and I'll read it now. A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. I lay down and slept. I woke again. For the Lord sustain me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Lord. Save me, O my God. For you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessings be on your people. Well, Go back to Psalms 1. You got it on the same page. What's the first sentence in Psalms 1? Blessed is the man, right? Okay. What's the last sentence in Psalms 2? Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalms 1 and 2 go together. And Psalms 1, you know, the first word is blessed. The last word is perished. So Psalms 1, you have 
a way of righteousness or you have a way of wicked. You have two paths in life. Choose to stay which path you're going to follow. Okay? The psalmist says, follow the righteous path. Stay away from sin. Then you get into Psalms 2, which is about the nations uprising against the Lord. But it ends, very interesting, with blessed are all who take refuge in him. Now we come to Psalms 3. David is going to have to take refuge in the Lord. Now, there are connectors in the Psalms, and you have to look for them, and we'll talk more about this in different Psalms, but you have a wonderful connector here. Blessed are all who take refuge in him, because Psalms 3, 4, 5, 6, and 7 are all lament Psalms. David has a problem. He's going to have to take refuge in the Lord, okay? So Psalms 3 is one of the many lament Psalms that deal with various circumstances that come into a godly man's life in which that man is forced to trust God. It's also called a morning psalm. See verse 5? I lay down and slept. I woke again for the Lord sustained me. Now look at Psalms 4, verse 8. Psalms 4, verse 8. It says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So Psalms 3 is called a morning psalm, which often at the temple or tabernacle would be sung by the worshipers. And then at the evening sacrifice, they would do the evening psalm, Psalm number 4. Some people have also called Psalm 3 a military psalm because it's about a military battle. It contains military language. So I've talked about the type of psalms. I briefly want to talk about what we call the superscriptions. Everybody see at the top of of Psalm 3, it says a psalm of David when he fled from his his son, from Absalom his son. Everybody see that? I don't know if you ever read those when you read the Psalms. I always do, and I would encourage you to do so because they teach us a lot. Now, we call them superscriptions. You might call them titles. I don't like to call them titles because your Bible gives you a title. And superscriptions, uh, authors would debate, they're not inspired scripture Some people would say they are, but it looks like they were added on later. They're in the Septuagint, possibly written 200 years before Jesus Christ, that Greek translation. So they're in the Septuagint, and of the 150 Psalms, 116 of them have some type of superscription from a very lengthy, lengthy, like Psalms 18 is like a paragraph, to some of them just a word. It just says a Psalm of David. So these are important because they, the historical ones are very important. They're important because they tell us who the author is. I preached on Psalm 90 last year. So when you know it's about Moses, you know that's possibly, that's the oldest psalm, maybe the oldest scripture in the Bible, Psalms 90, if he wrote that psalm before he wrote Genesis, Exodus. So, and a lot of them deal with the musical instruments, you know, um, that we don't even know what some of those instruments mean. But are they important? Well, do you remember Matthew 22 when I call that the great question chapter? The Pharisees and the scribes are trying to trick Jesus and they ask him these series of questions, some of them rather stupid questions, and Jesus answers them brilliantly. And finally, at the end, Jesus turns the table and Jesus says, who do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? And of course, the Pharisees say the son of David. And then Jesus says, how then is it that David in the spirit calls him Lord saying, 
And then Jesus will quote Psalms 110, verse 1. The superscription on top of Psalms 110 says a Psalm of David. So I believe Jesus, Jesus is omniscient. He knows who wrote all the Psalms, even the, the 30, 34 or the, 100, the 50 we don't know. But Jesus, I believe, alluded to that superscription. So I think they are important, okay? So I would encourage you to look at that superscription before, and it will help you learn a lot, okay? In the Hebrew Bible, the superscription is actually verse number one, okay? Not in our Bibles, though. So look at the superscription. It says a Psalm of David. And so the first time we have the word Psalm in the book of Psalms, because Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 do not have a superscription. And it literally means, psalms mean a song that is accompanied by a stringed instrument. Psalms is a hymn book of 150 psalms. It's actually five hymn books compiled over 900 years by at least seven authors. We'll talk more about that later or a different week. But this is the first one that has a superscription, a psalm of David. David is the author. And it says, when he fled from Absalom, his son. And that's why this is so important. Because not only do we have a poetry here by David in Psalms 3, we can go back and read the historical narrative, the historical count. And this, the, the historical count here is found in 2 Samuel chapters 15, 16, 17, and 18. Four chapters, 122 verses. But if you go back and read that, and there's, there's a verse in there that says, David went weeping, barefoot, and with his head covered as he fled Jerusalem. You see the agony in King David. Imagine your son overthrowing you. You see the sorrow, the pain that David is leaving, no, leaving his beloved Jerusalem that he may never return. So you read the historical account, whether Psalms 32 and 51 about David and Bathsheba, you, you, you understand the psalm much better. So if you see uh, in one of these historical accounts, <coughs> and we know that David wrote at least 73 of the 150 psalms. Well, we have 14 historical episodes of the life of David in the psalms. Psalms 3, Psalms 7, Psalms 18, Psalms 30, Psalms 34, Psalms 51, 52, 54, 56, 57, 59, 60, 63, and 142. 14 of the Psalms, we can go to the historical narrative in the Old Testament and learn why did they write this Psalms? What was their mood? What was their feeling? So those are really uh, rich Psalms. I think Psalms 3 tonight is a rich Psalm. I'm not going to go to 2 Samuel 15, 18 and read 122 verses. So I will just summarize this story. I think you remember it. If you want to get a series about David, Lance preached 47 messages called David, a man of God, a man after God's own heart. You can get that series because Lance is very good in the Old Testament. I love his Old Testament messages. But let me summarize what this psalm is about. While David was busy running the affairs of the government, not paying attention to what his sons were doing, Absalom stole the hearts of the people of Jerusalem and Israel, and he raised a rebellion in Hebron. Hebron is about 25 miles from Jerusalem. The revolt was sudden and unexpected, 
David was unprepared, and the only option he felt he had was to flee Jerusalem. So he crossed the Kidron Valley, made his way up to the Mount of Olives, out to the desert, crossing the Jordan River. As David went weeping barefoot, his head covered, he was openly and loudly cursed by Shimei, who was uh, loyal to the house of Saul. David's own trusted counselor, Atithophel, even turned against David and, rec- and, and wanted to kill David. The bottom line is it did not look good for David. A major battle is about to, to be fought or brewing. That's what Psalms 3 is about when we come to it. So let's look at our psalm tonight, Psalm 3. We have three points, very simple. David's problem, verses 1 and 2. David's peace, verses 3 to 6. And David's petition, verses 7 to 8. Now what's unique about this outline, you could use this outline in about 30 of David's psalms. David always has a problem, and he gives the problem. But David then will stop and start to praise God or trust God, David's peace or David's confidence. And then at the very end of the psalm, David will say, like tonight, Lord, save me, or give his petition. So you could use this outline for quite a few of David's psalms. So let's start with uh, point number one, David's problems. And there's two subpoints: David's enemies trouble him, and David's enemies mock him. He says, O oh Lord, how many are my foes? So the second part of verse 1, he says, many are rising up against me. Verse 2, he says, many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation in God. And then later on, in verse 6, he says, I will not be afraid of many. Four times, he says, many, many, many. He's got a lot of enemies in a very short amount of time. Nearly all of Israel had deserted David. Anybody with a grudge like Atithophel, I'll talk about him in a minute, they joined Absalom. You know, Atithophel, does everybody know who Atithophel is? He was David's trusted counselor. But do you know that he is the grandfather of Bathsheba? So he had a blood revenge. He joined Absalom, and he actually said, let me pursue King David, and I will kill him. This is the grandfather of Bathsheba. So apparently he wasn't real thrilled about what David did, even though God had forgiven him. But there were conspirators, and the conspiracy grew. It was payback time, anybody who had a grudge. He says, many are rising up against me. The enemies were increasing. Verse 6 mentions tens of thousands. And if we go to Samuel, at the end of the battle, it says 20,000 people died. So there was a snowballing effect. Imagine you being in Jerusalem and King David flees. You got to make a decision. I've got my job here. I've got my house here. I've got my wife and my children here. And David fled. Am I going to go follow him? And in comes Absalom. Most people are going to join the new king. They're not going to go after David. Just a few people left with David. But they had to make that decision. And as, as you had expected, most people went with the majority. David was in the minority. These people got braver and braver to attack God's anointed and join the, the majority in Absalom's rebellion. The bottom line, David is outnumbered and he's overwhelmed. David's enemies, verse 2, David's enemies will mock him. They, they are saying, they're saying, many are saying to my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. I'll talk more about this in a little bit. But the word salvation in the Old Testament 
does not mean salvation like we have in the New Testament. It means help. It means deliverance uh, or save. Those three words actually come from the same Hebrew Greek uh, root word. So it merely means deliverance. There's no salvation. There's no deliverance for him. David's enemies gave him mocking taunts that he was beyond God's help. The situation looked hopeless. His enemies were saying, he has offended God. God has forsaken him. God will no longer save him. That's what the enemies were saying. Like Satan, who accuses the brethren day and night, David's enemies were rehashing his sin with Bathsheba. David appears fallen, disowned, driven away from the palace, and accompanied by a few trembling friends. Surely God had deserted this royal sinner, they said. David knew the rebellion was not without some justification. Lance talked about this the last few weeks. After his sin with Bathsheba, David's life was never the same. The baby died, and ultimately three sons would be killed. Okay? Um, he realized that the, the sin lay at the bottom of the rebellion. The adultery with Bathsheba and the murder of Uriah began a series of tragic events in his life. This was a weak point in David's life. He should have dealt with Absalom after Absalom killed Amnon, but he did not. He sent, Absalom fled, but then he brought him back. He wouldn't talk to him, but uh, he should have dealt with it before. So this is a very weak point in David's life. Sometimes we look at our own life, our own heart, and our conscience reminds us of sins in the past or our unfaithfulness. Maybe our adversaries can approach, oh, you're a Christian? You know, maybe they, they hear you do something or lose your temper or say something bad. And they're like these enemies of David saying, oh, he's not a Christian. That's not a good Christian. There's no salvation in him. These words have a, a bitter stinging effect, don't they? And if we allow them to penetrate our soul, it can really drive us to encouragement. But David's enemies forgot three things. They forgot three things. Number one, God in his mercy had forgiven David. Psalm 32, we will look at that psalm in about five weeks. Psalm 32, verse 5, David says, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. He is praising God in Psalm 32 because God has forgiven him. There were consequences, but God forgave him. I remember... Uh, I believe it was 1995, one of the first, 1995 or 1996, 1997, one of the first mission trips that Christ Community Church took to Argentina, and we, we drugged the pastor along with us. And I remember we were going bed to bed in a hospital in Argentina, and Lance ended up talking to a murderer. He was in the hospital because he was dying of cancer, and Argentina is 90% Catholic. So that man had committed a mortal sin or a cardinal sin. But he's dying of cancer, and he told Lance, I can't be forgiven. I have no hope. And Lance opened the Bible and showed him 1 Timothy 1.13 about Paul was a blasphemer, a violent man. And I believe Paul you know, helped kill people. And he showed that man that there was forgiveness, that God is great in grace. And it was a wonderful time to see that man accept Jesus Christ before he would die of cancer later. God in his mercy had forgiven David. His enemies didn't know that. The second uh, thing that David's enemies forgot is God had placed David on the throne, and he had signed it by a covenant. A covenant is a promise. 
that covenant not only said that David would be on the throne, but his sons and sons. I know Absalom is a son, but that's not the son that God was going to put on the throne. And God is going to keep his chosen representative there until he removes him. And God had made a covenant with David, and they had forgotten that. The third uh, thing the enemies forgot is they did not understand the mercy and grace of God because they're non-believers. And non-believers cannot grasp the mercy and grace of God. Why would God save the Apostle Paul? Why would God save King Nebuchadnezzar? Why would God save some of these wicked sinners, including me? So I just want to not uh, digress a little bit, but everybody see at the end of verse 2, there's a selah. Everybody see the selah? Okay, I'll, just, I'll talk about this more when we talk about difficult words in Psalms, but you notice it's used three times in this psalm. At the end of verse 2, at the end of verse 4, at the end of verse 8. So in all of the Psalms, it's used 71 times in 39 Psalms. You get it three times in this Psalm. It's also used in the book of Habakkuk, chapter 3, three times. Now, commentators will argue, what does this mean? They will debate, but the best theory is it means you pause. It's a musical interlude. I like what J. Vernon McGee, who's still preaching from the grave, says. He says, the common man does not understand much about music. So J. Vernon McGee says, when you see a selah, he says, stop, look, listen. And I like that. So the next time you see a selah, maybe meditate on that paragraph, meditate on that verse. So let's move on to point number two, David's peace, verses three to six. And here we have his assurance in God, verse three, and then his appeal to God, verses four to six. His assurance is God. You notice the, the paragraph changes because he says, but. He's not, he's not dealing with the problem anymore. He's going he's gonna to give God uh, adoration and glory and praise here. And David has caused him to have peace. And he says a very beautiful verse. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David knew God and he appealed to him under the name Lord, capital L-O-R-D. Now, when we get to Psalm 29... We're going to look at all the different names of God in Psalms and this amazing study, and we'll, you'll love that when we get there. But David uses the name Yahweh here, or we would say in English, Jehovah. The God who keeps his word. The God who made a covenant with David. David's assurance is in the word of God, not his circumstances, not his feelings, both of which would have overwhelmed him. God made a promise to King David that he would be on the throne and not to, king, not to the rebel Absalom. David was confident that God would put him back on the throne again. How did David view God? Well, here's the beauty of the Psalms. And some people don't like the Psalms because these symbols, because these metaphors, there are thousands of them in there. But you have a threefold one here. You know the chorus, don't you? I would sing it, but you'd probably leave because I'm probably the worst singer in Christ Community Church. But remember the, the chorus? But thou, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. It's a chorus. And we sing that chorus. And by the way, in a, in a few weeks, before we look at a short psalm, Tim is going to lead us in some psalms. We already sing Psalm 130 here, right? I will wait on the Lord. We already sing One Day in Your Courts, Psalm 84. We already sing... Um, 
uh, as the deer pants for the streams of water, Psalm 42. There are hundreds of these choruses and psalms. And then you have hymns like a mighty fortress is our God. That's from Psalms 46. Remember bringing in the sheaves, that's Psalm 126. So we're going to sing, have some psalm sing night uh, in a couple of weeks, and that should be really neat. But he says three things here. He says, first off, he's a shield about me. We see this phrase, he is a shield about me, 21 times in the Psalms, okay? The shield is a symbol of God's protection, a metaphor, security in the Lord. Psalms 1830 says, this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He is a shield for all those who take refuge in him. This is not one of those small shields that you would see on the arm. This is one of those massive like Roman phalanx shields that cover the whole body, okay? The shield covers the body and it makes the soldier, it makes David feel safe because God is his shield. David feels alone with God, but safe with God. It reminds us of Romans 8.31. If God is for us, who can be against us? The second metaphor is my glory. Some translations like the King James would say the source of my glory. David had glory as the king of Israel. He had incredible glory, the greatest king in the history of Israel. But he had to flee and he had to put ashes on his head. He had to go barefoot. He was weeping. He lost his glory. But David knows the true glory belongs in God in heaven. David knew God was his true glory. The third thing is, it says, the one who lifts his head. Previously, when David fled Jerusalem, his head was hanging low. He was barefoot. He was weeping. He left Jerusalem in shame. He got Shimi throwing dirt and rocks at him as he's leaving. But he remembers now that God is there. And when you remember God, it lifts your head high. One author said, God is a shield to protect him, my glory to restore his dignity, and the lifter of my head to give him new courage. Let's look at his appeal to God. Verse 4, he heard his cry from his holy hill. That's one subpoint, And... Um, Subpoint two, wherever it is, is it sustained him while he's sleeping. So verse four, he heard his cry from his holy hill. So it says, I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill. Now, I'm running out of time. So if you write down 2 Samuel 15, 25. When David fled Jerusalem, Zadok the priest brought the ark of God and they were gonna take the ark of God. And David said, stop. Put the ark of God back in the temple. And he said, David said in 2 Samuel 15, 25, if God, maybe God will bring me back and I will see the ark. And then he says, and his dwelling place. The ark belonged in, in Jerusalem. It belonged in the temple. God's holy hill is very important in this verse. This is the place where God had installed David as king. This is the place where the ark is. This is a symbol of his earthly throne and the covenant where God would talk to the high priest where God was. So he says, I cried aloud to the Lord in verse four. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at a study and maybe Lance already did this, but nine times we see in the life of David, 
David inquired of the Lord. David inquired of the Lord. Remember, David says to God, shall I go and attack the Philistine? God says, go for it. David says, shall I flee from the city of Keilah? Will they give me up? God says, go, they'll give you up. Nine times David inquired of the Lord. Here he's just crying out to God. And and then we get to verse 5, which may be the high point of the psalm. David was sustained during his sleep. Now, we mentioned that this was called a morning psalm. It's very doubtful it was written that first morning after. Because when they fled, they took all night to cross the Jordan. Okay? So it's probably written the second morning when David has a good night's sleep. They crossed the Jordan where it was safer. They could, they, the Absalom's armies couldn't get to him. And if you know the story, uh, Hushai, David's trusted counselor, fooled Absalom and Atithophel because they were going to go after David that night. And Hushai uh, told him, no, no, don't go. So they protected David and protected him. So I think the second night he had good sleep. He was able to sleep and have inward peace. He was able to wake and have protection from the Lord. Uh, Inward sleep. In these verses, David tells us how he was able to lie down and sleep even in the midst of great dangers caused by Absalom's rebellion. It's a beautiful picture of one so trusting of the Lord that he could sleep soundly while the enemies are trying to kill him. Uh, Someone had said, God's hand was his pillow and his sleep was sweet. David's sleep was evidence that he was resting in God's promise. Proverbs 3.24 says, If you lie down, you will not be afraid. When you lie down, your sleep will be sweet. And one of my favorite verses in Psalms 127, the NIV, I used to study the NIV. The NIV in Psalms 127.2 says, He grants sleep to those he loves. You ever been awake in the middle of the night? I say, God, love me, love me, God, put me to sleep. And I usually know it's because drinking too many Diet Cokes, but I always quote that verse at night. So David was able to sleep and have inward peace, but he's also able to wake and praise the Lord because he has protection. The confidence in these verses express a new profound confidence the next morning. He went to sleep trusting God. Now he's awakened with the events of a new day, and he now is encouraged. He's saying, I had a good night's sleep, and now I'm not afraid of the troubles that are coming my way. Psalms 147 says, I rise before dawn and cry for help. I hope in your words. So uh, he heard the cry. Um, He was sustained in his sleep. And then verse 6, gave him the courage against tens of thousands. Uh, The majority was with Absalom. The minority was with God. The voice of the people was not the voice of God. You know, Lance had the kids up here on Sunday, if you were here Sunday, right? Remember the story of David and Goliath? David was a little teenager, right? Maybe 15, 16, 17. Well, he's not a teenager anymore. He's probably been the king for 30-something years. He is a powerful, extremely wise military general. But remember when he fought Goliath, what he said? He said, the battle is the Lord's. The battle is the Lord's. And and David, who was called a man of blood, while Solomon, his son, was a man of peace. David had fought and defeated the Philistines. He defeated the Moabites. He defeated the Edomites. He defeated the Malachites. He defeated the Amnites. And he defeated a bunch of Syrian armies 
And lastly, he defeated the Jebusites to conquer Jerusalem. He had nine major military battle conquests. He was a military genius, a good tactician, and he had incredible soldiers behind him. So he has his confidence now, even though he is outnumbered. What do, what do we get out of this, this personal application here in point two? Are you sleepless at night? Do you have some sorrow that troubles you? Maybe you need to lament through the Psalms like David. And if you do lament, and I'll, I'll, when I finish the Psalm, I'll give you some helpers. It'll help you through the storms of night. It'll give you peace. I don't know what your problems are tonight. I don't know what your trials are. I don't know what your discouragements are today. But Yahweh is a shield for us. He's our glory, and he's the lifter of our head. And he cares deeply about us, like he cared about King David. He will protect you, he will comfort you, and he will even give you joy in the middle of trials. Let's look at the point, the third point, David's petition, verses 7 and 8. Two points, for deliverance by God and praise to God. Verse 7, for deliverance to God. This is the petition here. Notice he waits till the end of the prayer for the petition. Um, you remember uh, uh, John Aker was here a couple weeks ago. Were you all here? And, and I always teach people how to pray the ACTS model. You know that model we teach in Fundamentals of Faith? Adoration first, confession, and then thanksgiving and supplication. And here comes John Aker saying, no, it's cats. Confession first, uh, adoration, then thanksgiving supplication. Well, I actually think most people do scat. Most people do supplication first then confession, because we always want to get our supplications out. We want to get our shopping list out, right? Well, notice David here, his his petition is at the end. So that's a model for us in prayer, okay? So he gives that after his problem, after his peace, he gives a petition. Uh, And notice, I love it. He says, arise, O Lord, exclamation point. Save me, O my God, exclamation point. It's like he's telling God, wake up, God. It's time for battle. God, get up and save me. This is a common theme. Psalm 7, 6 says, arise, O Lord, in your anger. Psalms 19, sorry, Psalms 9, 19. Arise, O Lord, let not man prevail. Let the nations be judged. And I won't read Psalms 10, 12, Psalms 17, 13, Psalms 74, 22. Five times the psalmist cries out, arise, God. Where did the psalmist get that? You know where he got that from? Moses. I, wish, I was going to turn, but we'll, I'll just read it for you. Numbers 10, 35. Numbers 10, 35 says, And whenever the ark of God set out, Moses said, Arise, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. So the psalmists all remember what Moses said. When the ark of the went out and they traveled, God would rise up. God doesn't sleep. God doesn't slumber. He's always awake. But I love the way David says, Rise, O Lord. He calls on Yahweh again. The fifth time he is called out of six times we see the name Yahweh or capital L-O-R-D in this psalm in eight verses. This, this Old Testament term Yahweh occurs 6,519 times in the Old Testament. Used The name of God used more than any other name of God. It's first used in Genesis 2-4. So he calls on uh, the name of Yahweh. And the second part of verse 7 is the actual petition. Notice it just says, save me, oh my God. You know, Martin Luther said, the fewer words, the better the prayer. 
Never be afraid to pray, people. Never be afraid. A few weeks ago in the second, first service, uh, we're praying, a couple of us, and uh, a lady came from the Spanish service because they're in the second service, and she said, could I pray with you guys? Come in. So we're praying in English, and she said, can I pray in Spanish? And we said, of course, because you're not talking to us. You're talking to God, and I think God understands Spanish. Never be afraid to pray with people because you're not talking to them. You're talking to God. But notice how short the prayer is. Save me, oh God. God doesn't need a long prayer request. He knows what's on your heart. He knows what your sorrow is. So David just says, save me, oh my God. And then David says in the last part of verse 7, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek, you break the teeth of the wicked. Now, this is poetic language. It was considered a very gross insult to be struck on the cheek in Jewish society. Remember the Apostle Paul in Acts 23, the chief, the chief priest says, slap him, and they slap Paul, and Paul loses his temper. But breaking the teeth, when you break someone's teeth, it destroys their capability for inflicting savage wounds. And so you got kind of an illustration of an animal here. You know, I love to watch the National Geographic channel, and if a buffalo or a zebra kicks a lion in the face and breaks the teeth of the lion, you know what happens? That lion's going to die because they can't bite. They can't chew. So that's what David's saying here is, is, you know, break their teeth. So you'll see this descriptive, powerful language in a lot of the Psalms. David knows the victory is already accomplished before the battle begins. David feels that God will rebuke the wrath of Shemai. David knows that God will confound the counsel of Atithophel. David knows that God will frustrate the rebellion of Absalom. David knows that God will stop the, the uprising. David knows that he is confident of victory. And then let's look at the last verse. Praise to God, verse 8. He just says, salvation belongs to God. It belongs to the Lord. I mentioned that in the Old Testament, salvation means deliverance. This verse reminds us of Jonah, chapter 2, verse 9. Jonah's in the whale. And Jonah says, salvation comes from the Lord. It literally means deliverance, okay? Now, I was going to have you turn to 2 Samuel 18, verses 6 to 9, and, and tell you how the battle went, but I'll read it. This is how the battle went. So it says, so the army went out into the field against Israel, and the battle was fought in the forest of Ephraim. And the men of Israel, that's Absalom's army, were defeated there by the servants of David. And the loss there was great that day, 20,000 men. The battle was spread over the face of all the country. Now listen very carefully. And the forest devoured more people that day than the sword. You know, I, I often wonder, I love the, the film series, Lord of the Rings. Anybody like Lord of the Rings? And you know that scene, I think it's in the second movie where the forest kills all, the trees kill all the people. I wonder if J.R. Tolkien got that scene from that verse. The forest devoured more people than the battle. It reminds me of um, uh, Joshua 10, 11, when the, the five kings attacked Gibeon and Israel had to come to the rescue. And it says that more died from the hailstones than that the sons of Israel killed with the swords. The battle was always going to be God's. David knew that. He knew that. So salvation in the Old Testament means deliverance, and David was delivered. You all know the sad part of the story, Absalom was killed. But in the New Testament, salvation means eternal life. It means born again. Zechariah in Luke 169 said, 
and he has raised up a horn of salvation for us, Simeon would hold baby Jesus in Matthew 2.30 saying, for my eyes have seen your salvation. Jesus in Zacchaeus' house in Luke 19.9 would say, today salvation has come to this house. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Spurgeon, who has written great series on the Psalms, said about this verse, this verse contains the sub and substance of Calvinistic doctrine. Search, search scripture through and through if you must. If you read it with a candid mind, be persuaded that the doctrine of salvation is by grace alone. It is the great doctrine of the word of God. Opponents will say salvation belongs to free will of man or to man's merit or at least to man's will. But we hold and teach that salvation is from first to last and in every iota belongs to the most high God. Let's look at the last part of verse 8. It says, his blessings be upon his people. You know the end of the story. David would go back to Jerusalem. Of course, he's sad that he lost his son. But he would continue to reign probably for eight or nine more years because he's probably about year 31 here of his 40-year reign. So David knew that there would be future blessings coming from the Lord. David would get the temple ready for his son Solomon. When Solomon took over, there were no more battles to fight. David had made peace and conquered all the enemies. So the, the people of Israel would be blessed for those nine more years and then most of the reign of Solomon. So there would be future blessings. So in the few minutes we have tonight... What's the application for you and me from this psalm? Well, it's a lament psalm, as I said. And, and I mentioned as many as 60 of the psalms that you will read in of the 150 are lament psalms. Can we identify with lament psalms? You know, um, somebody, uh, let me read what somebody said here. Uh, the church has been outnumbered by his enemies again and again. A few godly men had to struggle against the power of the government. Uh, Pastor James Coates yesterday, he lost his appeal, so now he's got to go back to court on June 30th. So when I think of the power of the government, uh, the government of Canada is much worse than ours. But the influence of the media or the influence of social media, the wealth of the lobbyists, the fury of the mob, even the power of the pulpit. Today, it seems like the believer feels the air is full of enemies. Enemies are all around. Believers can feel like they're alone, contending with the power of darkness, sin, doubts, fears, and sorrows. Verse 6 of our psalm said, they have set themselves all around me. The odds were overwhelmingly against David, so the odds are overwhelming against the church of Christ and those who trust Christ. And I may add, it seems to be getting worse and worse, doesn't it? Now tonight, nobody here I trust is going to have a son overthrow you tonight. Nobody here is going to have 3,000 of, of King Saul's trained assassins chase you. Nobody here is going to have to fight a nine-foot giant tomorrow, right? But as believers, when we have sorrows, when we have discouragements, we can take our laments to God. We can seek his help. So if you have problems, you need to spend time in the Psalms. You need to spend time in prayers. Remember the problem. But also remember the peace and remember the petition. You know, the problem we have, though, is we want a quick fix, don't we? We want, we're a fast food generation. I was in the drive-thru the other day, and it, it took like five minutes. I was like, what's so, I was impatient. 
yet. That's how we are with prayer. We want, you know, God to answer the prayer one time and now. But go to Luke, 18, go to Luke 18 and read verses 1 to 8. The parable of the persistent prayer. God says you've got to knock on his door many, many times. It's okay to lament to God. Give him your struggles, your sorrows. Are you lamenting? Maybe you're saying, well, I don't have any troubles. Everything's fine in my life. Well, why don't you lament for the sinful nation that we live in? Why don't you lament for the slaughter of the unborn babies? Why don't you lament for the attack on holy marriage? Why don't you lament for the, the, the LBGTQ destroying the, that men and women are made in the image of God? Why don't you lament for the children, your relatives, my relatives, who grew up in Christ's community church, but now are not walking with the Lord? Why don't we lament for the lawlessness that's increasing? Why don't we lament for Chinese Christians? Lance mentioned a few weeks ago, the, prime, the, the premier of China, he says that he is going to eradicate Christianity within 10 years. Well, I laugh because God is laughing at him. Psalms 2, God laughs in derision at the rulers of the world. He's not going to eradicate Christianity. He's going to help it spread because persecution spreads it. But I, I lament for my country, Myanmar, because it's horrible what's going on there. And I don't know how to pray because... I hate the Burmese army. They are, they're the only army in the world that attacks its own people. They are so horrible and brutal, yet civil war is not the answer, and that's what's happening and coming because now they'll all fight amongst each other. I don't know how to pray, but I just give it to God in peace, knowing he's the sovereign ruler of the universe. So I pray for the churches and my brothers in Myanmar. We need to lament, brothers and sisters. So number one, cry out to God in laments with your problem or the problems of our world. Number two, do what David did. Respond in trust and peace. You know, there's many verses. Lance quoted Hebrews 4.16 on Sunday that we can go right into the throne room of God. It says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace where Jesus Christ is that we may receive mercy and find grace in, a, in our time of need when we need help. We could do that any time now. So ask boldly for help. But there's a necessity of prayer, you know. And then number, number, okay, number two, respond in trust and praise. And number three, your petition. David just said, God, save me. Give God your petition. God knows the problem. You don't need to talk for half an hour. So cry out to God, number one. Respond in trust and peace, number two. And number three, ask boldly for help. I think that's what we learned from Psalms 3. David's problem David's peace, and David's position. And I will close with Philippians 4, 7 that says, when you lament, when you pray, when you give God your trouble, what does Philippians 4, 7 say? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. So we can lament, and God will give us peace. God will answer those prayers, maybe not according to what I want, but he will answer them according to his perfect will. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I just want to pray tonight for anybody here who is struggling, anybody here who's having trouble praying. May they remember what David did, how he, he, he gave you his problem, and, but he also gave you peace and trusted you with confidence that you're in charge. And then he gave you his petition to save him. Father, I just pray for the people here that are having sorrows, that are having struggles, that are having problems. Lord, hear their laments. You know it's okay to lament. You know it's out to cry aloud to you. Answer their prayers according to your perfect will. But give the people that are struggling peace. Give them peace, Father God. In Jesus' name, amen.